Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is Rachel Kleinfeld of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who studies democracy, conflict, and governance worldwide. Welcome, one and all. Rachel, Thanks, I Mona. want to begin. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Um, and uh, I want to talk with you a little bit about um, the the coming crisis. Um, I wrote a column this week about this topic, and I said, look, we... Um, if we could roll back the clock to January 1st, 2020, who wouldn't want to do that and make adequate preparation for the pandemic that was bearing down on us? Well, we didn't, but we do have another emergency bearing down on us, namely the November 3rd election and the problems of in-person voting in, in light of the pandemic. And um, we're, we have just a limited amount of time to avoid a disaster there, right? I, I think that's right. People think of November as quite far away, but in the world of preparations for an election, it's fairly close. There's still time, but there's time that needs to be used um, right now to act intelligently so we don't have an election that many voters will see as illegitimate. And that would be really problematic given just how little trust there is right now in the American political system on both sides of the aisle. Right. So this would always, you know, uh, elections where people don't trust the outcome are always problematic in a democracy. But but you, your point is that it's a particularly fraught moment, right? That's right. We're very polarized. Um, not since the 1890s have Americans been this polarized. And even then, maybe not quite so much. And the pandemic, while it's pulling us together in certain ways, is certainly not fully bridging that divide. So we can expect a lot of people to want to contest the elections in November. And what we need is to have the elections be pretty uh, foolproof. And right now, it doesn't look like that's likely to happen, given all the predictions that the pandemic either will still be raging or that we'll have a second bump when kids go back to school in the fall and um, start, you know, passing around germs the way kids do. Right. So um, so talk to us about um, mail-in voting. It's already the practice with, what, 25 percent of the American electorate? That's right. So, you know, a lot of the media is making out as if this is a brand new and very large change. And I think the first thing we need to understand is that this is actually both not new and it's a fairly incremental change. We started absentee ballots during the Civil War so that troops in the Civil War could vote from wherever they were. It's grown slowly since then. Absentee ballots have been possible if you're sick, if you have an excuse from your employer, if you're a truck driver who's out of state. One, one reason after another, it grew and grew. 20 years ago, Oregon started all mail-in elections, which don't really mean 100%. What they mean is most people vote by mail instead of most people voting in person, but there's still some polls open for people who say uh, can't read the ballot or need other help or just want to vote in person. So they started that 20 years ago. Um, and since then, other states have taken up parts of that. So now we have about five states, uh, not about, we have five states where it's entirely vote by mail. We have Meaning um, that they, they mail you a ballot, right? That's right. I used to live in Colorado, which is one of those states, and they mail you a ballot. You have a number of weeks to read the ballot. 
research who you want to vote for and vote. I actually found it lovely when I lived in Colorado because for all those down ballot races that you don't really, you know, city councilor or sheriff where you haven't paid a lot of attention, you can really research who these people are mm-hmm. and make an elect uh, informed elected decision. So five states, it's mostly by mail, more than, you know, 95%. Then there's a lot of voters who are voting absentee already, about a quarter of American voters, as you're saying. And that's because a large number of states um, allow for some degree of voting absentee with no excuse. So now I live in New Mexico. I can ask for an absentee ballot for any reason. I don't have to be sick. I don't have to be elderly. I can just say I want to vote absentee. There's um, a lot of states like that. So when you count them all up, there's about 30 states, the majority of states, where voters can decide how they're going to vote in the fall. And I think this is the big thing that we need to focus on. We're acting as if politicians have this decision in their hands, but actually in 30 states, voters are going to make the decision. And that's what happened in Wisconsin. You had a million extra voters saying we want to vote absentee and the state wasn't prepared. And so 10,000 of them or nearly 10,000 didn't even get their ballots and it was just a debacle. Right. Wait, can I interrupt you right there though? Because um, you're saying the voters will decide, but unless the states are prepared with enough ballots and enough warning, um, there there is going to be a problem, right? Absolutely. No, yeah, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. there won't be a problem. Yeah. I'm just saying it's not, the problem is not entirely in the hands of the pundits and politicians right, that right, in right. 30 states, the voters get to get to choose under existing law. Okay. And it's only whether the politicians make the decisions and the bureaucrats make the decisions to be prepared or to just have a mess. Mm-hmm. And then 17 states, uh, 16, whatever it is, um, do require uh, some sort of an excuse, right? That's right. So then then you're left with about 17 states. And I think it's also important to understand that those 17 don't break down by blue and red. The five states that are entirely vote by mail or almost entirely are both blue and red states. They're, you know, Utah, which is quite red and Hawaii, which is quite blue. Uh, About five more have permanent vote by mail. So they're pretty close. Those are also blue and red. Arizona, uh, New Jersey, California, Montana, Minnesota, they're all over the map. 20 more that have a lot of vote by mail and a lot of municipal elections by mail. So when you're left with that 17 that are um, where it's much harder to vote by mail, much harder to ask for an absentee ballot, you need an excuse, there's various reasons. Those states also don't break down blue and red. The real breakdown is actually the Mississippi River. Um, Western states seem more comfortable experimenting and uh, the Eastern states less so, but there's blue states in New England where it's real hard. And there's um, states in the South that are more red, where it's also really hard. They have a variety of different rules. So in a couple of them, four or five people over 65 can request an absentee ballot. But in a lot of them, being old is no excuse either. Certainly having rheumatoid arthritis or diabetes or any of these pre-existing conditions that make you more at risk for COVID-19 is not an excuse. And Texas actually just declared that, that, would, that uh, being afraid of the coronavirus was no excuse, that you were, mm. that wasn't going to be okay. Mm. So in those states, the, the uh, legislatures w- and governors would actually have to change the law, right? That's right. In those states, uh, the, the politicians need to make a decision that they want to open up voting in the way that New Hampshire has made that decision. New Hampshire's um, a Republican governor has said, uh, I'm going to let coronavirus quarantine or shelter in place be a legitimate excuse to ask for an absentee ballot. In those 17 states, though, it, I, I should say 
I don't think it makes sense for them to transfer entirely to vote by mail. It's just too big a change. What you want is some sensible policies. Texas, for instance, municipalities make a lot of the decisions about their elections. It would make sense for some major municipalities to decide to vote by mail because that's where the crush is going to be. If you're in a rural district that doesn't have a lot of voters, you might just extend early voting hours for this particular election. I mean, we're only talking 2020. We're only talking about a pandemic. Right. You might extend those hours so that people don't clump together on a single day. You, you know, mm-hmm. you can imagine mm-hmm. a lot of ways that that would spread out the risk. But what you don't want is a um, wholesale change that uh, also causes these states to have trouble. So it'll have to be state by state, municipality by municipality. But there's a long, there's enough space between where they are right now and where they could get that they should start moving. And you talked in your piece about drive-through voting. What's that? So um, drive-through voting is a lot like in-person voting, but you stay in your car. So it's safer. Wisconsin has some of this. Um, rural states where it just makes more sense, frankly, to, to vote by car than vote by mail. Um, there's places where, for instance, here in New Mexico, there's a lot of people on the Navajo Nation that don't have addresses. Uh, the, the, for various reasons, those parts of the country, it's hard to vote by mail. And so they might want to get in their car and vote. But instead of getting out of their car, waiting in a line with other people, exposing themselves to their risk, they might just be in a long line of cars. Um, it's safer for everyone. It's especially safer for the poll workers. And here, I just want to highlight that, you know, all of us who have done our civic duty and gone to vote have probably noticed that usually it's more elderly ladies that are manning those uh, polling booths. And that's that's national. The, the vast majority of poll workers are over 60. A large plurality are over 75. And so we put them at a lot of risk. And what we particularly risk is them just not showing up in Wisconsin we saw that in Green Bay, the third biggest city, um, they only had 17 poll workers show up on the day of the election, which is why they only had two election sites. Mm. Um, it's why Milwaukee went from 180 to five election sites. You just can't expect people who are the poll workers to risk their lives by handling driver's licenses and so on with no protection. drive through would be much safer because you could uh, kind of quarantine to some extent what people are touching. So a lot, two... two um... Uh, protests are outstanding, I would say, about this. One, people worry that there will be widespread fraud if you have mail-in voting. Um, And the other is that uh, a worry that was expressed by the president, uh, namely that if you do this, it will disadvantage Republicans and advantage Democrats. Can you respond to both of those? Absolutely. And I think we should take them both quite seriously. And I think they are... um, Pretty easy to put to rest, to be honest. Uh, let me take them in, in opposite uh, direction because the fraud one is a little more complicated. In terms of advantaging Democrats, there's been this long-standing belief amongst Republicans in the last couple of elections that more people voting will hurt Republicans. Um, that is not exactly true. According to the models of voting by mail, voting by mail does increase turnout. It does make more people vote. However, a lot of the people it makes vote are people who don't usually vote, and often they don't usually vote because they don't like either party, and they tend to be more on the populist side. And so what you see in the projections, the Knight Foundation did a really interesting survey of non-voters, people who generally are non-voters, who found that it would increase the vote overall, it would increase the vote among Democrats and the popular vote, but in battleground states, it would increase the vote of non-voters who liked Trump. 
which would help Republicans. And so in the Electoral College, it would actually help Republicans and in battleground states, Florida, Pennsylvania, Arizona, a number of others, it would help Republicans. Um, so it's much more equivocal than people think. What they found in Wisconsin was that Republicans and Democrats voted by mail in equal numbers, that Democrats came to the polls more. They were more motivated to risk their lives in this case, to go to the polls uh, last week um, than, than Republicans were, but that the vote by mail was pretty equal. And what we've seen in Utah and in Washington State and Oregon, other places that have vote by mail is that it increases turnout modestly and it really doesn't advantage either party. Elderly voters really like vote by mail. And since elderly voters are the people who are most likely to be harmed by COVID-19 and um, most likely to lean Republican, it could actually help Republicans in a number of states. Okay. And um, and then uh, what about the, um, the question, a couple more little things. One is, would this mean that we would not know who won on election night? It might. So uh, some states would have to change their rules. There are a number of states that don't count absentee ballots by law until after the election or the election day. It would behoove them to change that law and allow people to count. Um, I actually don't think that's a bad thing for there to not be an outcome on election night. I actually think I've done election watching in places that are much more dangerous and much more contested than America, Pakistan, Bangladesh, places like that. And um a lot of the pent up emotion happens because it's night, it's late, people are tired, they're watching the TV and the emotions just get stronger and stronger and stronger. In certain ways, it would be good for our democracy to take a breather and to say, look, we trust that the election will be fair and that people need a little time to count. Because what happens now is that we do these immediate counts, but they're actually not full counts. Um, anyone who stayed up until 3 a.m. watching the counts knows that Certain precincts don't get counted for a while. Ballots that are coming from military overseas are taking their time. And for presidential races, that rarely matters that much, except in the Gore v. Bush race. But in down-ballot races, it can be decisive. And so having everyone get used to waiting three days, to me, is not that big a deal. We could learn a little patience as a nation. <laughs> I like it. All right. Last thing. Um, I I love in-person voting as a patriotic ritual. Uh, I like the idea that people who can should get off their duffs and go down and wait in line with their neighbors and, uh, and cast their vote in person. Um, I think it's an important aspect of democracy. Do you agree with that? And would you be, you know, would you be saying this should, because some, some of what you said up until now suggests that you do and that you, you were saying this should be just the one time, a one time change because of COVID. So I want to get back to the fraud question because I didn't actually get oh, to answer oh, okay. that. So yeah. let, let me parenthesis that. But, yeah. but to just answer your question, I mean, I also like the ritual. I like seeing the people who are manning the polls. I appreciate that the League of Women Voters puts out their, you know, little newsprint thing that tells me all the, it's your most sacred civic duty to vote and to do it with others means a lot. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I recognize that there are people who systematically have trouble voting in person. I mentioned truck drivers before. That's the biggest profession in our country. It's also the biggest group that has trouble voting in person. You know, they're often in another state. Um, and so I understand that there are certain groups that are systematically disadvantaged by this ritual that I like. Mm -hmm. um, and I also feel like whether you think this should be a long-term exception or a one-time exception, it, we agree that voting is a sacred ritual and we can 
agree to disagree about how much uh, how hard it should be for different people to vote. But I think no one really wants it to be you might risk your life to vote. That that's just too much, right. and th- that might be where we are this fall. And so. For this particular election, I think we can take our time. I must say, when I lived in Colorado, I loved being able to really do my research. And you know, I've gone into voting booths in the past in other states with answers written on my hand. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you want to remember the names of the people that you've looked up, but it's so much easier when you can just uh, really think about it as you're or look up ballot questions. You know, sometimes they're worded in funny ways, and it's really nice to be able to look it up and really think about it ahead of time. Right. Okay. Back to fraud. Back to fraud. So fraud is a tough issue. First of all, the states that are most prepared for vote by mail, those five states that do all vote by mail, have extraordinarily low levels of fraud. Um, Out of about 100 million ballots cast in Oregon, 12 have been proven to have fraud. Heritage has been really looking into fraud, the Heritage Foundation. They've found about um, 1,100 cases of fraud, most of them individual cases of single people. Since 2016, you've had 138 million people voting in the last 20 years that Heritage has been looking at fraud, you have 250 million votes by mail. So it's this infinitesimal amount. The reason it's so small, particularly in the states that are used to vote by mail, is that if you plan vote by mail or if you plan absentee ballots as your main form of voting, you secure those ballots. So there's certain ways to do that. You have barcodes, so each voter only gets one. You have signature matching machines, so you're not relying on some random poll worker to match a signature, the machine does it. And then you have a chance for what's called a cure. If you throw out a ballot because the signature is different, someone can say, well, I had a stroke and my signature's changed, um, but that is me. And, and so you have very few cases. One of the few systematic cases they've found is in Utah, parents sometimes sign them for their kids. Their kids are 18, they're going off on mission and um, the parents still think of them as kids. And those have been caught. I think one of the real uh, comforts is that these cases get caught Now, absentee ballots in places that aren't as used to vote by mail are the most open to fraud. And I think we need to admit that. And part of the problem is that they're unusual cases in places that are much less open to to voting by mail or making absentee ballots widespread. Those ballots sometimes aren't even counted in elections or they're counted at the end when it matters less. And so there's less eyes on that problem in those places. And then you do have... uh, what's called ballot harvesting. Now, ballot harvesting is not always illegal. What it means is somebody goes around gathering the ballots of other people. It used to happen in nursing homes a lot, and some states have passed laws against it because they found that these individuals were exercising undue influence. But it's not good. I think it's um, even if it's somebody trying to be helpful to somebody who can't get out, it's not good. It's another reason why voting by mail is better. If you don't have to go to the polls, if you can just put something in your mailbox, um, you don't have that kind of ballot harvesting problem. The The last thing I'll say about fraud is that we're worried about these cases that are largely individual or that are occasionally uh, uh, um, like a political operative. Those have mostly been on the right, I have to say, in, in recent years, but they've been on the left 40 years ago, 20 years ago in um, New York nursing homes and so on. So it does happen on both sides and there's some contestation. But In the states where um, absentee voting is hardest, many of those states, like Texas, are also the states that don't have any paper trails in their machines. Um, And no paper trail in your machine means your vote is open to a different sort of failure, which is either a computer glitch or systematic hacking. Systematic hacking could happen at a much, I mean, if a ballot harvester could maybe 
harvest, you know, 30 votes from a nursing home, systematic hacking could change thousands of votes and there would be no paper trail. And so, in fact, mail-in voting helps those states have a paper trail, which to me protects them against a lot of uh, what I would call fraud, which is the changing of your vote by a mistake in the computer or by a malicious hacker. Excellent. Well, thank you. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our listeners? Um, and oh, yes, one, 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 la- I did say last question, but I have one, one more. And that's this, um, online voting. There are a lot of people who promote this, but um, it's, that's, that's more r- risky, right? Much, much more risky. We just haven't found a hack-proof online system yet. I've heard that there are some that are better. I'm sure there are some that are better than others, of course. But um, there was a high school uh, like hacking contest to figure out how to hack voting machines. They hacked most of our voting machines. Um, software is just is open to glitches. I used to work in, when I worked in national security, I did some work on uh, cybersecurity issues. And I remember talking to the head of cyber command and the DOD. And he said, look, you have millions of lines of code for any complex program nowadays. And when you find a glitch, when a hacker or even a white hat hacker, a good guy who's showing you the problem, finds a problem, you band-aid it with more code. Well, as you write the more code, the extra code creates new problems. It's it's not foolproof itself. And so every band-aid creates more chances for a hacker or malicious software, malicious virus to get in. So online is a much different beast than mail-in. And I think we're just not there yet, certainly not for this election. All right. Thank you so much, Rachel. Very, very helpful, very clear. And uh, thanks for your work. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Okay. Take care. Well, as coronavirus cases in the United States have topped 650,000 and deaths have topped 30,000, the nightly Trump reality show continues. Um, He showed a film this week defending himself against charges that he was tardy in fighting the virus and uh, the quarrels with the press continue. And by the way, the press is playing just as big a role there as the president. Um, I don't know if anybody saw the chyrons that CNN was running this week, but they were, um, shall we say, combative. Um, So, Linda... Uh, look, you can, this is, this is serious stuff. Um, you know, he, he is a big joke, but he's the president of the United States. And at a moment when arguably, uh, we, you know, the nation turns its worried eyes to the president for some leadership and from, for some sense of, of navigating out of this terrible crisis, um, we are getting the usual Trump you know, uh, disarray and, and solipsism and narcissism and, and all of that. Well, that's exactly right. And in fact, one of the most interesting stories this week was about the president's, um, wanting to have his own two hour a day radio show. 
Uh, he was persuaded not to do that, not by common sense or by some sense of uh, dignity or anything else, but because he was worried that it might interfere with Rush Limbaugh's show. And so he uh, backed off that decision. So instead, he's been trying to have this reality TV performance every evening. And I will say, you know, it is very difficult. You're absolutely right. He is the president of the United States. He won the election. He won it fair and square, uh, even with the attempts of Russia and others to influence the election. The fact is he won. And, um, and you would think that we would have to have some deference to that. But when he behaves like he does, and when he gets up and instead of doing, you know, a factual presentation, or one that tries to unite the country, uh, he goes off on his tirades, he uses it as kind of a grudge match, uh, calling out names, calling people names, including reporters, it makes it very difficult. And I think some of the uh, decision by CNN, MSNBC, and, and other networks not to run these live uh, from gavel to gavel, as it were, uh, but rather to uh, let him have his opening and then to move away and have somebody in the control room monitoring what's said and going back to the press conference when there is relevant material for the American people. That is actually, I believe, exercising good editorial judgment because he is not doing the country a favor. And frankly, he's not doing himself a favor. Um, you know, all of the polling that we've seen recently suggests that these uh, daily uh, performances of his have actually hurt his uh, support among people, particularly independents and, and others whom he will leave for re-election. So I think it's not been bad that the, uh, the networks have been exercising some judgment in what they carry and what they don't. Well, Bill, people could make the argument that if if the network, if if CNN and MSNBC want to damage Trump, they should carry every minute of these uh, of these performances, right? Um, because he keeps digging himself deeper. He, he calls people fake. Uh, he he retweeted someone who um, had had put a hashtag fire Fauci. And when he was asked about it, he was indignant that anybody would think that he had talked about firing Fauci. But of course, it was his own retweet that that made the question arise. But anyway, um, so so what do you um what do you think about these nightly uh, tirades and uh, and you know just respond to everything that Linda said? Well, first, I, the reason I started laughing when you started posing your question to me, Mona, was that you were reading my mind. <laughs> you know, the, uh, and you know, and and Trump obviously believes that the more Trump there is available to more people. Uh, the better it is for Trump. Uh, and all of the available evidence suggests exactly the reverse. Right before uh, this podcast began, a new Pew survey just popped. Uh, and it revealed that 65% of the American people now believe that Trump was too slow to begin taking this seriously and instituting important measures. Uh, and that number is actually higher than it was just a few weeks ago. Uh, so clearly, he's not helping himself by 
insisting over and over again that he was the first to see it. And isn't it wonderful that he imposed uh, an early travel ban on flights from China? That's just not cutting it with people. Another interesting finding from this new Pew poll is that just 39% of the American people think that he's telling it the way it is. And a solid majority say that he's really trying to sugarcoat it. So when he says that he thinks of himself as the cheerleader for America, that it's not his business to provide bad news, uh, most Americans are taking that as, as evidence that he's simply not telling them about the situation in, in a way that they can rely on. So I don't, I don't see how the Daily Trump show is good for the president's prospects in November. Damon, one of the things that Trump himself and the Trump brigades have been doing in the past week or two is they've, they've pivoted to this, let's blame the WHO and let's blame China uh, for, for the virus. Now, um, obviously, China did a lot of things wrong and was completely dishonest, as the communist government there always is, um, and definitely deserves to be um, examined very closely for its role in all this, for its early missteps and, and lies and, and, uh, and so forth. But, um, but the president himself uh, was also slow and dishonest in, uh, in the early stages. So um, w- what do you say to that? And then I want to bring in Jim Swift on this too, because he wrote a really good piece um, sort of documenting all of Trump's uh, uh, statements about China. But, but you go first, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a typical case where Trump, you know, like the proverbial stopped, uh, stopped clock, you know, gets some things right occasionally, uh, as if just by chance. And he's not wrong to point to uh, China's dishonesty about a lot of things, especially early on, uh, when they hoped that they could perhaps contain this and not get uh, a black eye, sort of uh, reminiscent a little bit of uh, Russia right after Chernobyl, sort of pretend it didn't happen, control all information and make it go away. But as with Chernobyl, it, it, it predictably got out. And unlike Chernobyl, uh, the contaminant uh, spread far, far more widely, and the, the damage is serious. Um, similarly, the World Health Organization did not uh, do what one would hope for an international organization that's supposed to have the uh, kind of global public health as its number one priority. It sort of carried water for China's response uh, for quite a while. It was kind of skittish of efforts Taiwan was undertaking that seemed to be working because, of course, China doesn't want to give Taiwan credit or really even acknowledge it exists. Um, And so that deserves to be called out and Trump called it out. Great. But the problem, of course, as you noted, is always that Trump does these things mainly for the sake of identifying scapegoats, taking credit for himself, uh, trying to fob off any 
bad consequences of his own misdeeds uh, on others. And so it becomes uh, kind of wrapped up into this us against them, friends and enemy narrative that permeates everything that comes out of the president's mouth. So that you end up in the situation of wanting to say, as I did in a couple of tweets over the last few days, that, well, Trump's terrible, uh, but I'm not going to defend the WHO just because Trump is rightly pointing to its failings, but neither am I going to really jump to Trump's defense in how he's trying to turn it into a a kind of black and white story of of how any bad thing now that happens with the virus, including deaths, including the economic collapse we're all contending with, that's all China's fault. It's all the World Health Organization's fault. I deserve no credit, no blame, and all the credit for anything good. It's just, it's a kind of madness, and it's just incumbent, I think, on all of us who prize reason to resist the temptation. Um, There's another aspect of this that I find incredibly troubling, and that is that when you have a leader of the United States of America seeking to fob off, as you say, blame and, and, and trying to, um, to find a foreign scapegoat for our troubles, um, even if in this case, as we have acknowledged, China bears some blame, but still this tendency is so much like what we see in poorly governed nations around the world. You know, you see this often in the Arab world where, you know, they're constantly trying to say that all of their troubles are, or at least they used to, were, you know, the fault of Israel and, and didn't want to deal with their own internal problems um, or, or what Russia constantly does or what China itself does. And for the United States to be engaged in that kind of thing is so, so disheartening. And for all of the people like Brit Hume and Laura Ingram and others who are ready to say, you know, but China, but China, but China, you know, it's 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 humiliating uh, for the United States to behave like those countries. Let me bring Jim Swift, our eminent producer into this and also contributor to The Bulwark, um, because Jim, you had a great piece where you documented the long string of comments from Trump that began at the, you know, about New Year's Day and continued right up until mid-March of him defending the Chinese, right? Yes. And, you know, I think, you know, we we were talking about this on Slack and uh, it's hard to understand, uh, unlike some of you who have worked in a White House, who have worked for a president, uh, what motivates or um, you know uh, inspires the president to say something uh, or do something, and um, in an irrational world, you know the president would listen to his or her advisors, right? They would go to the National Security Council, they would go to their intelligence agencies. Um, but for a span of like fifty some odd days, President Trump was basically saying China was doing a great job. And, uh, you know, we know now that our own intelligence community was saying that's malarkey Mm -hmm. and uh, he chose. And one of the things that um, I did not put my piece because I can't substantiate it. We probably won't know this for years as a truth is how many times Trump actually speak with President Xi? Uh, He sort of has a chatting about it. 
Yeah, no, all the time. But he kept saying the same thing. And he has this chatty Cathy complex, like you're just pulling his string. And he's saying the same thing. Did he have one conversation with him? And did he talk about that for 50 days? Did he talk with him four times, five times, two times? We won't know for years. Um, but one thing to me is clear, and, and uh, this was a little bit of a dig, I called him Beijing Bob. <laughs> he, was, he was carrying their water. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think China is not to be trusted. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think they have a lot of blame. You, you know, Charlie put this in our podcast the other day. You can think China is not to be trusted and Trump isn't to be trusted. You can hold both of those conflicting views. You don't have to pick a side. Right. Um, right. And uh, and he but, and he kept saying, you know, that the 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 Chinese have this well under control, just as he claimed he had it well under control. Neither was yeah. true. No. And, you know, he, he kept saying they're professionally run. You know, yes, yes, very professional. They're transparent, run. very transparent. He he loves authoritarian regimes, and he tends to take the word of authoritarian leaders over his own intelligence agencies. We've seen that again and again. Um, okay, uh, the uh, the other thing is that just this week he said. Uh, so this pattern continues. Just this week when he was trying to line up uh, people to serve on his, what is he calling it? You know, opening our great country council or something. Um, he was saying, uh, he, he had a conference call, according to New York Times, where he said, testing is under control. Okay. One percent of the American people have been tested. One percent. Okay. And the governors and the epidemiologists and all of the experts say we have to have widespread testing before we can think about resuming economic activity. Um, so the, the, the pattern of, of denial continues. Um, Linda, let, let's switch topics to, though, to some of the reactions uh, by other levels of government, because... Um, because while the federal response has been obviously lacking, governors have stepped up and so have mayors and local officials, but sometimes they seem to have gone too far. And we have had protests around the country this past couple days uh, where people are just very angry. And, and sometimes you can understand why, um, you know, like in, uh, in Michigan, uh, there was a, the, the governor instituted a rule that you couldn't buy seeds from, from a, uh, you know, from a flat, from a uh, garden shop. And um, some of them seem quite arbitrary in, in Mississippi, people were arrested for attending a drive up church service where they stayed in their cars and just tuned to a radio station to hear the pastor. Um, well, so, yeah, I think that's right, Mona, that that um, obviously, you know, when you have basically not just 50 states, but in some areas, mayors making uh, different decisions, uh, not everybody's going to get it right. But I think they've gotten it a lot more right than we have at the federal level. And as for these protests, um, I mean, if you look at the photographs that are coming out, um, these look awfully lot like the kind of people who go to the uh, Trump rally, some of them you know, carrying signs that are, you know, supporting Trump. 
and it seems more like it is a political movement than anything else. And one has to wonder, looking at that, they are putting themselves at risk. They're putting themselves, their communities at risk when they go and uh, refuse to wear masks or are standing, you know, shoulder to shoulder uh, in large crowds. This is uh, clearly not good. And by the way, just as we've been uh, on the air recording this, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that this afternoon when Trump has his uh, daily press conference, uh, he's going to announce that, oh, gee, it's really going to be the governors that we're going to try to uh, uh, get to make these decisions. And it appears to be his effort to make sure that if things don't go well, he's not going to be the one that's blamed. Now, he's out there encouraging right. everybody to open up. But of course, Governor Cuomo this morning, uh, in his quite excellent, this I think was one of the best of his uh, daily uh, press briefings, announced that they were going to keep their uh, rules in place into May, to May 15th. So he's essentially extended it uh, another month. But he also laid out in very good detail how it was that they were going to decide this, that they were going to be looking at, for example, and of course it's going to require uh, more testing, but they were going to be looking at uh, the spread, the rate of spread. Does one person who is infected infect more than one person? And if that happens, of course, that means that the problem is growing, or are they going to infect less than one person. And even now in the state uh, in New York, apparently they think it's about nine tenths of a person spread. So it's a little bit less than one, but hardly the level that you would want to see it to be confident that you could open up. So there's some irony here. Uh, all of these people clamoring to open up who are Trump supporters, Trump himself saying we have to open up but apparently about to defer to the governors in order that he not have to shoulder any blame on making the actual decisions. Well, two things. One, um, I think um, I think Cuomo may be channeling Angela Merkel, who um, in her press conference went through exactly that same analysis. So that's you know maybe a little bit of uh, stealing going on there. But in any event, that's fine. Um, uh, but but the uh, but the other. Um, the other matter that I wanted to get to uh, with Bill is that, you know, so these people who are protesting the shutdowns and look, you have to be sympathetic to people who are hurting. Definitely. Um, this is very tough, um, especially for those who um, did live paycheck to paycheck and are just, you know, really, really getting desperate. And it's it, of course, you have to be sympathetic. It's terrible, horrible situation that we are in. Um, at the same time, it does strike me as odd that, you know, those who are carrying Trump signs and paraphernalia, because Trump is the one who said that he wanted to shut things down, right? I mean, that, so so why are they saying that? Why did they not hold him responsible? That's kind of kind of odd. But an another bizarre thing that happened this week, Bill, and you wrote about this, was um, the president announced um, that he has complete and total authority as president of the United States and um, that he is completely in charge. Um, so um, he walked it back a little bit, not really, but, uh, but tell us about uh, Gibbons v. Ogden. <laughs> well, get, you know, don't get me started on that case, which is, <laughs> you know, which is complicated, but what it, what it comes down to is this. 
that Chief Justice John Marshall uh, wrote an opinion which remarkably remains intact fully as good law down to the present day. My law professor wife was able to verify that. And what Marshall did was to interpret the, the Commerce Clause expansively, but at the same time to make it clear that there were important powers reserved under the Constitution to the states. And the core case of powers reserved to the states are what are called police powers. That is states' sovereignty when it comes to issues involving the health, welfare, and safety of their citizens. And Marshall even went on to list quarantines and health measures as matters that were within the sovereignty of the states. Uh, And so when Trump asserted that he basically could do anything he wanted under Article 2, there was a chorus of boos, which included a number of prominent uh, conservative-leaning law professors uh, and included the law professor who had been recruited during the impeachment hearings, one of my wife's colleagues, Jonathan Turley, uh, who just said the president was dead wrong. And there is no, there is hardly any dissent on that question. There was a somewhat more nuanced analysis in the Wall Street Journal today, but but even those authors who are very sympathetic to Mr. Trump and to broad executive powers were not able to reach his conclusion. It's unanimous. He was dead wrong. And uh, so, you know, thank God for President Trump, who has reunited the country uh, <laughs> around a core constitutional issue, yeah, namely yeah. Feder- federalism. The attorney general of the state of California, uh, uh, Mr. Becerra, was quoted in the news in in the news just a few hours ago as saying we are all federalists now. Mm. I don't know. I don't know whether that is. I don't know whether he knows that that's a line from Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural address. Yeah, but, it's, yeah. but it's true, yeah. uh, and uh, I think it's. I, this has been a great constitutional lesson. Yeah, it would be the 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 cherry on top would be to see um, if somebody present the question to Attorney General William Barr, you know, what do you think about the president's assertion of complete and total authority? Well, how about him claiming Um, that he has the power to adjourn both chambers of Congress and then appoint judges? Yeah, I I thought that was great. That was, that was the icing on the cake, right? As I said, as I said, uh, after he uh, made that statement, that must be uh, present in uh, article seven of the Congress. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that. <laughs> but uh, or maybe you can read about it in two Corinthians. Right, it's, 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 it's the, the unabridged Constitution, which I think is what he keeps by yeah. his bedside. <laughs> oh my! All right. Well, um, Biden also had a big week this week. Um, he finally got the endorsement of Bernie Sanders, of Barack Obama, and then of Elizabeth Warren. Um, not in order of importance, of course. Um, but, uh, and so he's, you know, the Democratic Party is, is now united. Um, but there is a, an accuser 
who has come forward to make an accusation of sexual assault against Joe Biden. And uh, this has been a delicate thing that um, the media has been, some members of the media have been touting and others have been a little chary about. So, uh, Damon, why don't you weigh in? I know you um, addressed this in your column. Yeah, I mean, it is a tough, uh, a tough situation because uh, let's just be honest that um, a lot, a lot of commentators in the media and Democrats uh, were pretty savage in their attacks on uh, Brent Kavanaugh after he was accused of sexual misbehavior back when he was a teenager in the 1980s uh, by a, uh, a professor uh, named Christine Blasey Ford. She testified before the Judiciary Committee. Uh, and uh, in the resulting days after that, uh, back, I guess this was in October of uh, 2017, um, it was very clear that a lot of people, feminists, Democrats, uh, journalists uh, were outraged that Kavanaugh might actually get confirmed uh, to the high court in, in the wake of this. And now because of that, now the right is hitting Democrats and uh, the left for being so careful and cautious and tentative in their examination of uh, this new accuser, Tara Reid, who says that Biden uh, assaulted her back in 1993 when she was on his staff in the Senate. Now, my piece tried to uh, do as what I do, my brand, is to be fair as possible to both sides and to say, in effect, we really don't know what happened with Kavanaugh. We don't know what happened with Biden. Um, the charges here are a little strange. Uh, there was uh, Tara Reid uh, gave an interview last April, meaning a year ago, uh, about how Biden used to sort of touch her shoulders and hair in the way that he sometimes has done with women in a way that made her uncomfortable. But she said nothing about anything more than that. Now she's changed her story and she did it on a kind of left wing podcast. So, I mean, did it happen? Who knows? I think that actually the way the media is responding to this now is probably a lot more responsible than the way it handled the Kavanaugh accusation. And so I tried in my column to make the case for being cautious, for not uh, adopting the uh, kind of Me Too slogan of believe all women automatically whenever... Uh, someone makes an accusation that that was irresponsible, then it's irresponsible now and that should not be the standard. And if we stop treating it at the sta as the standard, then uh, the results will probably be better for all concerned uh, going forward. So that's the that's about the best I can do. But it's an uncomfortable situation. I, I tweeted some... Uh, things back during the Kavanaugh hearings that were quite uh, positive about uh, Blasey Ford's testimony against Kavanaugh. I thought Kavanaugh's response to the accusation before the committee was deranged and unhinged and totally unbecoming of a judge. Uh, so it, by the end of that whole escapade over two years ago, I was kind of disgusted and thought it would probably be better for Republicans to just withdraw the nomination to put up another conservative who didn't have this uh, around his neck. But of course, that would then be capitulation, which is not permitted in Trump's Washington. 
Bill, I don't remember where you were on the uh, on the Kavanaugh thing. Can you refresh my recollection? I never wrote a word about it, to the uh, best of my knowledge. Uh, okay. uh, and and the re the the reason is that uh, I just found it an imponderable, impossible question. Mm -hmm. uh, and but let me let me make a recommendation. Uh, my friend Ruth Marcus, who literally wrote the book on the Kavanaugh hearings, mm -hmm. uh, published a piece in today's Washington Post, uh, which I think comes as close to the standard of fair-mindedness in assessing the pros and cons here as anything I've read. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the people, the people who did take you know, a total confrontational stance towards Brett Kavanaugh uh, are probably going to find themselves in a difficult rhetorical position on this one for quite some time to come. Uh, one of my maxims is that there's no such thing as a single-edged sword, and it has served me very well. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, you know, I'm always I'm always struck by how the enunciation of general principle uh, is a risky business. Which isn't to say that you should never enunciate risky principles, but you should do your best to cast a wide net, pull in as many examples of things falling under the heading of that principle as you can, and then see where you stand on the principle. I just got uh, I just got an email based on my Wall Street Journal piece about federalism and absolute article two powers of the president uh, from a critic uh, who said, well, I agree with your principle completely. And then there was a long litany of uh, long lit litany of things that he was, you know, he was hoping that I would write about, including the patent illegitimacy of imposing a one size fits all marriage standard on the 50 states uh, and he said, I'm waiting for your columns on these subjects, uh, but I have a bet on it. And I'm sure it was not a bet on the positive side. So that was not entirely unfair. Uh, I have answers to all of them, uh, but they're not, they're not simple answers. Well, Bill, you are a mind reader because you were reading my mind. I was also going to draw attention to uh, Ruth Marcus's piece, which I thought was uh, fair-minded and good and, and was cautionary. Uh, Mona and I, I think, probably uh, don't have to play hypocrite now because I think we were both uh, somewhat skeptical, at least, uh, about uh, the Blasey Ford. I, I know I certainly was. I shouldn't speak for Mona. Um, testimony. But this seems so far out of the realm of, of probability, uh, in part because it is rare from all we know about these kinds of cases, for there to be one person uh, whom uh, the predator attacks. This is a pattern of behavior. And yeah, there have been a lot of complaints about him, you know, squeezing shoulders, maybe, you know, smelling the back of somebody's head, doing things that in today's standard would be considered inappropriate, but were less so uh, in the political world in which he grew up. But no one has suggested that he has done anything coming close to this really vile, uh, assaultive behavior that this woman has claimed. And so, I, you know, I think there is a lot of reason to be skeptical. 
Uh, and I think the uh, news media has handled it just about right. Well, first, let me um, join in the uh, in the praise for Ruth Marcus because Ruth and I go way back. Um, we are old friends. I, we met when we were in the fourth grade. So um, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So Ruth and I go way, way back. And uh, yeah, I, I thought her piece was good. I also would recommend the um, piece by Kathy Young in Arc Digital where she went into the you know gritty details about this case very very carefully she um, she examines all of the of the details and it's uh, very very illuminating and and one of the look I, I'm not shy look I I wrote a book about um, about issues that touch on this just recently called Sex Matters uh, available on Amazon for those who are you know finding time on their hands. Um, and I have no trouble saying that the idea of believe all women is ridiculous, ludicrous, okay? Women are human beings who have all of the flaws and, uh, and, and shortcomings of, of humans. And sometimes they lie. And sometimes they even lie about sexual assault. So, um, of course, you cannot believe all women as a blanket standard. Um, it, you know, should we treat all women with respect and certainly all accusers with respect and with an open mind? Of course. But, uh, but yeah, the idea of believe all women was always nonsense. Um, uh, regarding Blasey Ford, I thought it was, um, I thought it was, it was iffy, you know, wh about whether she was telling the truth or not. And under the circumstances without proof and for an accusation going back decades, my, my inclination was to say it wasn't, didn't meet the, the standard of proof that you need in a situation like that. Uh, though I have no idea what happened between those two people and I don't even have an opinion about it. I do have an opinion about this one. I think this woman is lying. And part of the reason I think she's lying is that she changed her story. Blasey Ford never changed her story. Um, this woman has, you know, first it was, you know, she told people that he touched her shoulders and her hair, which was consistent with other, as you've all said, consistent with Biden's behavior with other people over many years and really not that big a deal. Um, and then, you know, she she changed her story to one of this this unbelievably graphic assault, you know, sticking his hands in her pants, um, you know, in a hallway in the Senate building. Um, and frankly, I just don't buy it. I just don't believe her. I think there are lots of reasons to think she might be a little un unhinged, um, not not excluding her fascination with Vladimir Putin, though, of course. A, a shirtless uh, Vladimir Putin, yeah. by the way. She's quite enamored, enamored of Putin. And, uh, and she's given many different reasons for why she left. She was on his staff for a few months. Um, she's given many different explanations for why she ceased to be either she was forced out or she was um, uh, she was too disgusted by American imperialism to work there another day or, you know, she wanted to pursue an artistic career. She's given all of those reasons for why she left. So I don't think this is a particularly stable person. And uh, maybe that's unfair of me, but she is she is attempting to. Um, you know, to, to ruin a man's life. And so um, it's, it's fair to, to, to question her about it and to, to note that there are problems with her story. I don't, I don't think it's unfair at all. I don't, I, I no. I mean, uh, Capitol Hill attracts a lot of crazy people. 
uh, not just constituents, but staffers and elected officials. And um, I think you did a good job and a fair and empathetic job of highlighting um, someone who probably has some deep-seated issues. And uh, something that disappoints me is someone who does not buy into the whole hashtag believe all women. I think you should take seriously any claim uh, someone makes like that as, as it's a serious claim. But, uh, you know, a lot of people on the right are not taking it seriously. They're just demagoguing it for politics. Yes. And that yes. also disappoints, that just disappoints the heck out of me. Yeah. Well, I'm really old. So I remember when uh, liberals were going crazy about Bog Packwood um, and then later about Clarence Thomas, but fell silent about Bill Clinton. So this is a really, really old story. There's hypocrisy enough to go around. That's for sure. All right. Um, we have come to the end and now we move to our um, things we want to give more attention to. Uh, Bill, why don't you start? I just want to underscore the significance of what happened in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, not only was a contested uh, contest for a judge resolved surprisingly strongly in favor of the Democrat, but also a huge number of Wisconsin citizens, most of them Democrats, took an extraordinary risk in order to vote. Uh, Wisconsin arguably is one of the most two, one of the two most important states in the forthcoming general election. And if I were a Republican political operative, I would be worried by the demonstration of commitment and determination that we saw from the voters of Wisconsin, mainly the Democratic voters in Wisconsin, in going to the polls despite the risks uh, to cast their ballots. Uh, you know, the, you know that old saying that you'd crawl over broken glass to vote. I mean, these people practically did that. They took their lives in their hands to vote. That's commitment. It was uh, it was notable. Yep. Uh, Linda. Well, I wanted to uh, point out uh, a story. It's actually appeared in, in uh, many different publications, but this week there was a story in the Washington Post, an, an opinion piece, uh, undocumented immigrants essential to the U.S. economy deserve federal help too. And as I'm sure most of our listeners know, uh, if you are undocumented, even though you pay taxes uh, and file tax returns every year, you are not eligible uh, to receive any of the stimulus checks. So we have a lot of people who are out there risking their lives every day, working uh, at jobs that are essential. They are a very heavy part of the essential uh, labor force, and yet they cannot uh, receive any money. Some states being led by California's Governor uh, Newsom have decided that they're going to step in and try and offer some help with a combination of state support and private philanthropy to try and give $500 checks to um, immigrants uh, who were not documented. But, you know, I think it's worth remembering that in the farming industry alone, 
Uh, undocumented people overall are about 6% of our labor force in the farming uh, field. They are one out of every four workers, and that estimate uh, may in fact be low. We need these people. We need these workers. Uh, the federal government is doing absolutely nothing, and President uh, Trump won't even uh, talk about uh, whether or not this is a need uh, that needs to be addressed. So I wanted to point that out. One of the greatest ironies of recent times has got to be that these workers are here illegally and they are subject to deportation if they can be found. And yet they were declared to be essential employees and told to report to work. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, Jim, do you have something for us? Stephen Mnuchin, the Bond villain Treasury Secretary we have, uh, <laughs> went on uh, Face the Nation, and uh, he said that he thought that these stimulus checks, and I don't know if any of the other panelists or, or, or listeners have gotten theirs, we got ours because we got direct deposit. Um, his point that he made to uh, uh, Face the Nation and to listeners was, these, these checks in the mail are direct deposit. It's really bridge liquidity for people as they go through these difficult times. Bridge liquidity for about eight weeks? Well, I, I think the entire package provides economic relief overall for about 10 weeks. Uh, wow. <laughs> and Tell that to yeah, Mrs. Mnuchin. I, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, no, she, she couldn't she live on that for two minutes. <laughs> No, she, she, she's got a pretty pricey lifestyle, but I, I will give credit to Alex, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who uh, many people on the right, uh, like myself, like to pillory. Uh, and she tweeted out the video uh, with an Arrested Development uh, reference and said, it's your monthly rent, Michael. What could it cost? Ten dollars? <laughs> uh, and, you know, she was making a Lucille Bluth reference there suggesting yes. that you know it's a banana what could it cost ten dollars um <laughs> suggesting correctly that mnuchin was out of touch and uh of course he is and um you know i just saw that and i said you know what credit to aoc that was that was a good burn so yeah Okay, excellent. Damon. Well, um, I have been robbed because, as sometimes happens on the show, uh, Mona, this time you uh, mentioned Kathy Young's ARC Digital piece about the whole Tara ah. Reid accusation. It's it's a very good essay, as, uh, as Mona noted, very careful, uh, very kind of uh, hyper-journalistically uh, professional, kind of going through every claim, accusation, double, triple-checking everything, and there's actually a very good update at the bottom of it now uh, where she kind of incorporates stuff that has come out since the piece originally appeared, including the long New York Times and Washington Post essays on it. So uh, if you're looking for one place to kind of check the facts, that's probably your best place to go, although I'm sure Ruth Marcus's column is also quite good today. Um, but since, uh, you know, I do one more thing I can throw in since that was not a new uh, comment. This isn't something to read. It's just a comment about uh, Representative Justin Amash from uh, Michigan, who is toying with the idea of 
running uh, for president, I guess, on the Libertarian Party ticket. Um, I just want to say, you know, Amash is one of the very few people uh, in Congress who's really um, uh, done an admirable job these last few years. He was a Republican. He left the party to become an independent out of disgust with Trump and over the right things, over uh, a kind of uh, commitment to classical liberal principles and uh, conduct uh, becoming the president and Trump's uh, incapacity to match what we should be expecting. But uh, I do very fervently hope he does not do this um, precisely because he's pretty impressive, which in a third party uh, way could mean as many as, you know, maybe two or three or 4% of the vote. And we really can't afford, uh, playing games, uh, our system. And for reasons I won't get into, most listeners probably understand third party tickets. If they catch any traction, usually end up hurting their own side ideologically, which means he's likely, Mush would be likely to pull votes, uh, from Trump, which, you know, maybe would help Biden, but with Amash being so offside from the Republicans these days, you just don't know. And I think we'd be all better off if uh, everyone who doesn't want Trump to win would just vote for Joe Biden. I agree. Um, I would like to pay tribute to a friend who died this past week, um, Abigail Thernstrom. Uh, she and her husband, Stephen, uh, wrote really a seminal book uh, called America in Black and White um, uh, that was really um, a, a masterful examination of race relations going all the way back uh, to, the, to the Reconstruction era. Um, very, very learned and, uh, and fair and balanced, uh, not to coin a phrase there, but, uh, but I thought it was a, a great piece of, of work. And she also was dedicated her whole life to um, improving the lives of the less fortunate. I mean, she, she wrote another book that, was, that I was very fond of called uh, No Excuses that was about uh, basically about extending educational opportunities to uh, inner city kids. And uh, so uh, she, uh, she passed away this week at the age of 83. It was not COVID, uh, but uh, she will be much missed by her friends and family. All right. We want to thank everyone for tuning in. Please uh, rate and review us while you're uh, while you're home with lots of extra time on your hands. Would we'd be so appreciative if you would do that so that other people could uh, c- can find this podcast. It's growing every week, especially during this um, this emergency. Apparently, our listenership is up, and we thank all our new listeners too. So, we will see you all again next week. Thank you.